Don't blink. Don't drink the water. And hey, who turned out the lights? We're getting spooky on this special Halloween edition of This Week in Time Travel. Happy Halloween, everybody. Happy Halloween! It's October 31st, and that means that we're going to deviate from our Christmas master plan. Yep, we are going to talk about the episodes that scare us, that delight us, that have all of the Halloween monsters that we enjoy this time of year. I'm currently recording with a literal bowl of M&Ms and a cider, so we're going to get right into the good stuff. And joining us tonight for our special Halloween episode is Rachel. Hello, Rachel! Hi! Glad to be here and celebrating this special holiday. Now, we're going to get to the good stuff in a moment, but before we do, we do have some news that we want to cover. Uh, First, you may remember that way back in January, we saw Peter Capaldi marching in London's Women's March. Well, the movement continued this past weekend at the Women's Convention in Detroit, where Big Finish voice actress Chase Masterson was there with her organization, the Pop Culture Hero Coalition. You may have seen them on Twitter at Superhero IRL. She was there in the special Women's Convention Kids Room to teach kids about social justice, and it was delightful following her Twitter feed for the whole weekend. Awesome to see. Uh, Chase Masterson is a regular at uh, Gallifrey One and other uh, regional conventions uh, through her Big Finish work. And of course, uh, she was a supporting character on Deep Space Nine. So uh, good on her for being involved with the Women's March. Speaking of conventions, right after our episode dropped last week, we got some disappointing news about Gallifrey One. Not about Gallifrey One, but about one of the guests at Gallifrey One. Unfortunately, Pearl Mackey cannot attend anymore because she is in a, appearing in the play The Birthday Party. We also are no longer going to be seeing the McCoy-era musician Kef McCulloch and the class producer Derek Ritchie, but we are getting a special performance from Murray Gold on the Saturday of Gallifrey One, and we will also be seeing Series 10 costume designer Haley Neubauer, which is amazing, and I'm so excited to see her. I'm so excited for both of them. And to make up for not seeing Pearl Mackey at Galley, I bought a ticket for the birthday party in March. Oh, that's a good life choice. That is an excellent choice. Well, I happen to already be going to London at that time to see Christopher Eccleston in Macbeth. So I figured, hey, might as well, you know, do all of my Doctor Who theater stalking in one weekend. I am envious. I am hugely envious. As far as Galley's concerned, I'm going to be interested to see how many questions Haley Newbarra gets at her various panels and such about the hoodie agenda. I think that's going to be a very hot topic, so to speak. Well, I will be there in a hoodie, staunchly defending the hoodie agenda. So bring it on, people. Bring mm. it on. Speaking of conventions, if you're going to be at Long Island Who, November 10th through the 12th, Alyssa, Rachel, and I will all be there, and we'd appreciate it if you'd say hello. Yes, I will have ribbons, keeping up the ribbon tradition. We have a director for the next series of Doctor Who. Jamie Childs has been named. 
Stephen Shapansky at Radio Free Scarrow, who is not dead to me. I apologize, Mr. Shapansky. Anyway, Stephen dug into his uh, CV, and he's not got a huge track record as a director. He's directed a show called Vera, a show called Stan Lee's Lucky Man, and he's been a second unit director on Poldark. The speculation there was that, you know, it's a in, uh, less expensive uh, director, possibly. Uh, it's also possibly the show being guided by the writer's room more than the director. Some some interesting tea leaf reading to go there. And Broadchurch producer Sam Hoyle is going to be joining Chris Chibnall and Matt Stevens as an executive producer. I just really want to know who the writers are and see how many more directors yeah. that we're going to get. I remember watching an old episode of The Monkees once, and one of the characters complained about the writing of the very episode that he was appearing in, and he opens the door to the writer's room, and it's a bunch of wizened old monks um, or something like that. I hope it's not going to be like that. I hope so, too. I'm just, you know, the anxiety will not go away until I know. Maybe this will help your anxiety a little bit. Um, I have seen rumors on Twitter that Jodie Whittaker will be using her natural Yorkshire accent in the role. Uh, so if this is Ooh. the case, if this is the case, this is going to make our resident Yorkshireman the long missing because he's been very busy. Tom Atta, wherever he is, it's going to make him very happy. Yay! Please, please tell me that we are going to get another reference to lots of planets have a north. Please, please, just slip that in somewhere, guys. I'm begging you. Yeah. So that is the news that was for the week that was. And when we come back from talking about what else is happening on the incomparable stable of podcasts, we're going to talk about Halloween. This week on The Incomparable. If you know what words like quartan and formication mean, formication with an M, get your minds out of the gutter, then you'll enjoy playing along with Steve Lutz's hilarious word game, Low Definition, on the Game Show podcast. If you're looking for a good science fiction or fantasy novel for the fall, Jason Snell and the Book Club have convened to bring you a giant list of favorites on The Incomparable. And Erica and Steven briefly surface from a sea of reconstructions and watch an actual moving picture of Patrick Troughton on Lazy Doctor Who. All this and more at TheIncomparable.com. So Halloween is one of my absolute favorite holidays. I practice it all October long. The candy comes out on October 1st and sits on my desk until about a week after the beginning of November. I wear costumes as much as I possibly can. But unfortunately, I didn't get to go to any Halloween parties this year because of other commitments. So I decided we're going to take a break from the Christmas master plan and spend this entire episode talking about our favorite scary episodes, our monster mash episodes of Doctor Who, which I just I love them all. Even when they annoy me, I love them all. They're so good. So I've sort of broken this out. Rachel and I talked a little bit about how we categorize 
all of the scary episodes of Doctor Who, and we came up with a couple of different ways to talk about them. So the first batch of episodes I wanted to talk about are sort of our Monster Mash episodes. These aren't all necessarily meant to be scary episodes, but they do play on some of the classic Halloween monsters, the vampires, your Frankensteins, your werewolves. Oh, yes. And of course, the classic haunted houses. So some of them are played for laughs. Some of them are meant to be scary. But in a show as long running as Doctor Who, it's pretty much inevitable that these monster mashes would happen. So Rachel, what are some of your favorite monster remixes on Doctor Who? I'm a huge fan of Tooth and Claw. I like werewolf stories to begin with. And this one is so great. And especially because it is, it's terrifying in a lot of ways because of the being trapped in a room aspect of it as well. But it also has a little bit of humor with Queen Victoria and, you know, the royal line being infected with mm-hmm. werewolf. Um, I don't know what the word is for that. <laughs> Lycanthropy. Um, yes. Oh, yeah, that is it. So that's certainly one of my favorites. And then another one is Mummy on the Orient Express, mm. which with, you know, the tension of the countdown clock every time. And even the look of that mummy was just extraordinary, too. So I thought that was pretty scary as well. Yeah, I think Mummy on the Orient Express is... One of those where it's a monster mashup that genuinely actually feels scary at times, Mm -hmm. um, that they do a really good job of ratcheting up the tension throughout the episode. So that way you do genuinely feel afraid of this monster, which could get, you know, into fairly ridiculous territory fairly quickly. One of the things I come back to with mummies in Doctor Who um, is Pyramids of Mars, which alternates between being utterly absurd and utterly terrifying in sort of equal measures. You know, the the mummies themselves are kind of silly at moments. You have that, you know, wonderful scene, which turned into one of the best gifs on the internet of the doctor and Sarah walking into a room and a mummy starts to turn around and they just turn around and they walk straight back (laughs) out of the room again. Um, And it's not really scary because of the mummies. It's actually like the most terrifying moment in that episode the confrontation between the Doctor and Sutek. So they're sort of like, weirdly, the comic relief of the episode at times. But uh, Mummy on the Orient Express, I thought was one of the uh, best Doctor Who adaptations of mummies that I have seen. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And of course, they put the sort of Doctor Who universe spin on it, where like all of these monsters sort of exist because of alien reasons or because of science reasons. But who cares? They're still the monsters. Yes. (laughs) You know, um, I'm not as Halloween-oriented as uh, y'all are, I think. It's not as big a holiday for me. Um, And I think that actually affects how I watch Doctor Who, because some of these episodes that y'all are talking about, I tend to look at through a science fiction lens rather than a horror lens. So when I think about Mummy on the Orient Express, which I love, I'm as conscious of the other stuff that's going on in that episode, the spaceship stuff, the flapper costuming and things like that, as I am the, um, you know, the classic monster, the mummy stuff. I've got some huge gaps in my Hinchcliffe era Doctor Who, though. So I this that was possibly the golden age for classic monsters being remixed, right? 
there's a lot of sort of gothic horror and classic literature remixes in that era. So you see a lot of different types of horror elements being brought in during that era at different times. And I'm by no means an expert on that era of Doctor Who. I've still, I've, I've only seen those episodes once or twice at most. It's not really the era of Doctor Who that I watch repeatedly, but that, that sort of uh, feel really comes through um, in those episodes. I think the other thing too, is that given, you know, especially with classic Who, um, having the special effects in some of the practical effects not being as strong as they are today, let's say. She said mm-hmm. diplomatically. Um, <laughs> I think that when a show can really allow you to experience that suspension of disbelief and scare you, it is so amazing to just experience that tension and, and those feelings of being terrified given the the visuals that you have. And I think the writing in some of these episodes do that quite well. Yeah. And I think for me, I don't rely so much on the monsters at the time to really give me a good scare. You know, like with Pyramids of Mars, the mummies don't scare me too much. It's that confrontation between the Doctor and Sutek that is terrifying. And that Mm -hmm. comes down to incredible acting, um, great writing, um, and not so much on can we craft a monster that is going to be scary, um, that it's it's about how you build the situation that they're in, which I think weirdly sometimes works and sometimes doesn't work when you have a, a haunted house scenario on Doctor Who, because those sorts of episodes are sort of meant to terrify you with the situation that you're in, that you're building up this tension and... Uh, you're building up this fear about what's lurking in this place that you're in. There's a feeling of being trapped. There's a feeling of having to fight your way out and, and not knowing what's coming after you. Um, this started off as being a little bit scary um, in actually the first Doctor at Uh, episode the chase they end up in what's later revealed to be sort of like a theme park haunted house thing but it's kind of really you know a little bit alarming for a moment when you've got you know dracula around in the house because you're wondering is doctor who really gonna go here for a moment um it didn't work for me as well in hide though um no yeah i wasn't really scared by that one more just sort of like Eh? I, I, I was kind of not really felt anything really about it. I think it worked really well for about half of Knock Knock, though, from series 10. Like, oh, I, yeah. re- I really loved it all the way up till the explanation at the very end. But everything it's, leading up to it was really scary and good. It was. And just not knowing, like, who was going to make it. Right. I think was it, it was really unpredictable. I thought, mm-hmm. and and that created some of that tension and fear for me. Yeah, um, I think the God complex could fall into this category. What do you two think? Oh yeah, that could, yeah. that could definitely fall into it. What did you think about that episode, Chip? I, again, I'm not. I, I tend to watch Doctor Who for sci-fi, not for horror. So some of it tends to bounce off of me. But I thought the God complex was one of the most genuinely scary and atmospheric create a uh, sensation of dread in the audience kind of episode that I've experienced. It wasn't about the Minotaur, 
the Minotaur didn't come off super great. But I thought that the scariest thing in that episode wasn't the Minotaur. It was the hotel and it was the environment. And take that and the direction that uh, this was directed by Nick Curran and written by Toby Whithouse. You take that and you add on to that the weird flashes of overlays as the different characters in this hotel succumb to the to the evil influence and you have all of these almost ransom note appearing flashes of words like submit or faith or whatever you know things like that and these are people that are just sort of succumbing to the situation uh, it it creeped me out but good there's a lot of sort of psychological horror in it watching people sort of get unwritten and destroyed by the place that they're in as they're getting confronted by their fears. So another common scary element of Doctor Who stories is using creepy children, which kids is... Kids are scary. Kids, kids are, are very scary. Kids can be absolutely terrifying when they are doing things that they are not supposed to be doing. And it's sort of as the low As the hanging... one parent in this conversation, I wholeheartedly <laughs> agree. and i think that it's sort of the low-hanging fruit of scary episodes sometimes because it's really easy to sort of sometimes drop a scary child in oh like but also they do it really really well like there were very few episodes that i thought of with scary children that i went "Eh, i wasn't terrified by that one because uh kids are scary yeah because i think even fear her was not good but i thought the kid was kind of creepy and terrifying Yeah, there's something about seeing a kid and seeing her fear and rage get expressed in such a way that that was kind of scary. Because we've all seen a kid that has just gone through too much and is just about ready to, you know, tear the world apart. And it's, it's a kid having a moment and being able to just inflict the absolute worst that they can think of on people without consequences. Um and the way she acted during that, like, you know, your mileage for that episode varies, but the kid was pretty dang good. I think yeah. so. And I thought it was really unfortunate how many uh, sort of fans and critics sort of slagged off the child actor in that piece when I thought the biggest problem with that episode was the scribble monster, not not the not the child. Exactly. Yeah, I think the scribble monster was one of those trying new things with you know, the technology that they had available and, you know, they're experimenting, they're trying new things. And I guess that's good, but it just, it, it didn't, it didn't really land as being anything scary. You know, mm-hmm. it, it kind of felt like that SpongeBob SquarePants episode where the, the doodle creature comes to life. <laughs> um, Doctor Who, with their first new series attempt at the scary kid, though, really knocked it out of the park in The Empty Child. Yes. Um, my sister, fun note, um, I have tried to introduce her to Doctor Who, um, and it has not really been successful. And I think where I went wrong is because I um, tried to get her to watch Empty Child, and she refuses to watch the second part. She's just, she got through part one, and she's just like, no, no, this is scary. The children are scary. They're asking for their mummies. This is not okay. She refuses to watch anything more after that. <laughs> yeah, I can certainly understand it. Um, cause especially because it's not just a creepy child, but it's a creepy child in a mask, which is another layer of horror that makes it even more terrifying. And 
also there's the added layer of it sort of there's like an infectious disease aspect to it mm-hmm. but it all stems from this kid mm-hmm. and it's just yeah uh it that one really got me yeah it's it's taking the zombie trope and mm-hmm. you're and it's a it is a helpless kid who is also part of the problem and then you layer onto that a uh, gas mask which is just inherently terrifying no matter when you encounter it real really really scary stuff i i forget all the scariness when we get to the end and everybody lives and all exactly. this other stuff and so you had to go through it to get there yeah yep. you did yeah you did but as a result in the end i don't think of it as a scary story until i just sort of force myself to recap back at the beginning and of course it's it's leavened with humor all over the place go to your room and uh all sorts of hijinks with bananas Yes, but it, it, those moments feel very earned because it does feel like something is really desperately wrong through the episode. You know, you need those moments of levity. Otherwise, uh, it wouldn't be quite as horrifying if it was just relentlessly about this creepy child pursuing you for the whole episode. Sort of wanted to add as a corollary to this, we have a... Torchwood story that I felt deserved sort of an honorable mention in this category, um, and that's Children of Earth, which is probably one of the most divisive Torchwood stories out there, which is sort of saying something. And whatever your feelings are regarding the overall story, I think one of the most effective bits in that is the way they manipulate children in that story to create horror. Uh, because there's a very Pied Piper situation where the aliens are showing sort of part of their power by getting the children to do creepy things and scare the adults. Um, and that, for me, was kind of an incredibly effective part of the episode, that it it really brought home the stakes of how bad things could be if they did not give in to to the demands that were being made. Yeah. It also plugs into, uh, you know, for some people, child endangerment is the, the scariest sort of situation that you can encounter to the extent that uh, my wife, Shannon, is a big Torchwood fan of all three seasons that she has seen, even Miracle Day. She has not and will not watch Children of Earth because what happens to kids in that is absolutely harrowing. It's... It yeah. is proper scary. Mm-hmm. Sort of the same way my mom doesn't like watching Stranger Things because the kids go through so much awful stuff in that. But it does it does feel a little like almost Stranger Things prototypey of sort of the, the horror things that children will go through. And the different perspective that brings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another- I feel like we do need to mention human nature. Family of Blood, because Daughter of Mine is one of my scariest characters in all of Doctor Who. And it's mostly because of the balloon, which is reminiscent of it, uh, (laughs) which has always been a favorite Stephen King story of mine. And, uh, you know, especially now with having recently seen the new movie, it's kind of fresh in my brain. But yeah, a little girl skipping with a 
red balloon. Uh uh-uh. uh. Yeah. Uh-uh. And even even son of mine, you know, he's older, uh, so yeah. he's not exactly a child, but he is still, you know, that is a terrific, scary off performance there, and uh, it's that that notion of being taken over and being just completely unsympathetic uh, is, uh, you know, kids losing themselves to an outside force. Uh, that's that's pretty darn horrific right there. I think that one of the things that also really scared me about that episode was the ending because part of it was that what these aliens could do was actually not that terrifying in the end, that the doctor could easily have dealt with them, but that he also was trying to be kind. He was trying to just prolong things long enough that they would die naturally and he did not have to intervene and do anything. But he was pushed by circumstances, partly what the family did and also partly, you know, his own negligence and his own sort of lack of attention to putting a bunch of innocent people in danger by luring the family to where he was hiding out and hiding part of himself away, that when he does eventually punish them, he sort of, it feels like almost going over the line. And that moment where you see daughter of mine trapped in the mirror for eternity, like, and you see the small child just peeking out and having that look of something older than it should be. Um, and knowing sort of that that child is trapped in that situation for an unimaginable length of time. Like there's something very sad and very frightening about that moment that he goes so far in punishing daughter of mine. Next category of Halloween-y Doctor Who episodes that I want to talk about is probably some of the episodes that we're most familiar with for utterly scaring the pants off of us. And that's stories that include a fear of the unknown and the unseen, which I sort of think of as being the Stephen Moffat special. Because (laughs) this is the monster that he does exceptionally well with. It's the monster that moves when you're not looking at it, or a monster that you never see at all, or maybe there's nothing even there, and you're just reacting a bit to the house settling at night. Um, And I have a special place in my heart for these stories, because Blink was the first episode of Doctor Who that I ever watched, and it scared the life out of me. I did not close my eyes for must have been an hour after that. I was lying in bed, staring at the ceiling in the dark, going... I'm going to blink and something's going to grab me out of the dark. And it just utterly, utterly terrified me to my core. Yeah. Between the weeping angels and what they could actually do and that, you know, recorded message from the 10th doctor of don't blink and the way he's just focused into the camera looking at you, like Mm -hmm. you really feel like, oh my God, maybe I shouldn't blink too. Yes. Yeah, really, really powerful stuff. I have the feeling, Alyssa, that uh, the closing of that episode where it tried to make the uh, point that every statue in the world could be a weeping angel probably worked for you. And that definitely did. You know, usually those types of endings don't work with me because it feels too much like a nod to the audience, like it feels too obvious and I don't like getting um, sort of 
brought into the stories that way because it sometimes feels patronizing. But the way they did it was just kind of subtle and perfect. And I live in a city with a lot of statues and a lot of angel statues. And that's not okay. (laughs) It's very not okay. (laughs) Everywhere. They are everywhere. And, And I still, to this day, look at them with a little bit of side eye. Well, especially since you are in New York, where they did another Weeping Angels episode and used famous Mm -hmm. New York statues. So you've got the real thing. I know. Yeah, but they used the Statue of Liberty. Okay, we're not talking about the actual merits of that episode because there's (laughs) not many. But having an actual statue of a Weeping Angel that has been in an episode of Doctor Who that you have to walk by frequently. That's a lot. That's a lot. It really is. I think, you know, I love the way that Stephen Moffat uses these types of monsters in Doctor Who. Um, Silence in the Library, I think, is incredibly effective because you have a sense that the monster is there, but there's absolutely nothing beyond some practical effects of removing flesh from bone, of, you know, the chicken leg going through a shadow and getting stripped. Otherwise, there's not really anything of a monster to see. There are shadows, but there is no actual, like, physical vastra that you can see and point out. It's more of a hint of where they're going and what they're doing. I think that the Weeping Angels sort of got overplayed in later episodes, But for me, one of the most effective episodes about this is Listen, because there's a very strong case to be made that there both is and isn't a monster in that episode, that perhaps there is really something under the bed, but that maybe there isn't anything at all, that maybe it's a buried memory, that it is a jump when the house settles at night, that it's another kid playing and we react a bit too strongly because we don't know what it is. What did you guys think about that episode? Did you did you like it? Did you not like it? Did you find it scary? I really liked Listen a lot. I don't know that I found it scary in the same way as like Silence in the Library that you mentioned. Um, I think just having like the shadows be the thing to be scared of because you experience them more on a daily basis, I think that was a lot more scary to me. That was one that didn't stick with me super well because I did want the answer. I did want to know what was going on. The whole point of the episode is to be ambiguous and that either sits with you or it doesn't. Once I discovered that there wasn't going to be a super strong resolution to the story, I kind of tapped out a bit. Oh, really? I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, that's okay. You're allowed to have your feelings about it. I guess it was for me one of those episodes that did sit with me. Like I still, I still like think over in my head about that episode about is there, is there not a monster thinking about fear and how we process it? Yeah. Like I like the ambiguity of it. And, you know, I feel I feel bad because, you know, critics loved it and um, it wasn't what I was looking for. But that is that is perfectly fine. It does. Doctor Who does not have to be made for me. In fact, it's probably a good thing that it's not. (laughs) (laughs) 
So our next category of scary episodes is the human takeover. And one of these overlaps with the fear of the unknown and the unseen. And that is Midnight. Where Uh, this is by far, I think, the scariest episode. Yes. On the list, hands down. So, Rachel, tell us a bit more about how and why this terrified you. Okay, so it's got a bunch of different factors at play here. So there's the trapped in a small enclosed space that they cannot get out of immediately, right? So that's scary that they're trapped. They've got an unseen monster on the outside and it's banging on the outside of the the capsule that they're in. So that's also terrifying because you don't know what it is. And then you have the human takeover aspect of it where the woman gets taken over supposedly by this monster that's on the outside and is slowly learning and getting smarter. And then the ultimate scary thing happens where the doctor gets taken over as well. And the doctor is the one who's supposed to fix it and solve this and get them out of this scrape that they're in. And he's gone. Yeah. So that that is kind of the cherry on top of the scary of this episode. And I... This is an episode that I've probably watched a dozen times at least. And I have the same tension and the same fear every single time. It's so tightly written and paced so well that builds to that crescendo. And then um, even that little coda at the end with the doctor and Donna. Yes. Just Mm -hmm. like you just feel... And he's like, don't you just don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. get it because you're like, I, 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 I went through that with you and I get how you feel. It's it's Russell T. Davis's strongest script in the entire in, in his entire five years, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And the concept is get rid of the companion. The doctor has nobody with him to sort of back him up or to tell the other people on the bu- on the space bus here that they should be impressed by him. He's got nothing going for him and he is less able to influence the situation and less and less until finally he's just plain taken over and when the bus attendant finally finally recognizes what's going on and sacrificing yourself. That's the only thing that saves the doctor's life. He is utterly powerless throughout the episode. And I think that is the thing that makes this so scary is that the doctor isn't just ineffectual. He's a victim pretty much throughout the whole thing. Yeah, there's no heroic action at the end from him. You know, he's as much of sort of I don't know. He's as much as one of the bystanders that any other character would be in one of his stories. You know, he sort of figures out what's going on, but he doesn't have the opportunity to stop it. Um, And it's ultimately nothing that he does that saves the day. And it's kind of weird to have him be in that position where he needs to rely on the goodness of others to be able to to save him, that he, you know, is very close to to getting killed himself and nothing he does uh, saves him. In Um, the end, he's even traumatized. Yes. It it doesn't stick into future episodes, but He's yeah yeah he 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 comes out of this thing not in a good place. Mm-hmm. One of the other episodes that's sort of like that is Waters of Mars, 
because the doctor comes out of that pretty incredibly traumatized as a result of both what he's seen and what he's done. You know, and there's there's two levels, both, you know, the doctor becoming the Time Lord victorious, which is scary enough in itself, but the human takeover element of whatever creature it is that's in the water is that that was very, very scary. And I think that was done so well, both from a story perspective and a practical effects perspective. I actually went and watched the Doctor Who Confidential for that story and watched the the process that they had for making this prosthetics so that they could have the weird cracked faces and the water coming out from them. And it was intense to see how they did that and how they had all this water constantly over them. Um, and the actors actually looked pretty miserable as soon as they were done filming because they're just like completely soaked with cold water from hours and hours of filming this. But it, it's, it, I think it was very effectively done of how terrifying it would be to get taken over so utterly and completely. One of the most horrifying moments for me is the scene where the woman is trapped in the room with no escape and the water's coming in on to her and she knows she's about to die and she's trying to like have that last moment of watch a recording of her children before she gets taken over by that that to me is where human takeover episodes get really terrifying when someone knows it's about to happen to them yeah and i i think that feeling was the same kind of feeling i had when i saw ark in space for the first time and you know it the fly is probably the scariest movie i have ever seen and it has that similar feeling where there's a physical transformation happening and you can't control it and it's slowly growing and it's changing you and so you're both it's the individuals are scared themselves but then it's also other people being scared of them and having to avoid them. And uh, it's, yeah, that whole thing is just, oh, that creeps me out so much. Well, it it plugs into so many fears that we have in the real world of uh, medical or psychological things that we just can't control or even just plain aging. The human takeover stuff has some real, real, dark scary dramatic power to it it does i think one of the uh stories that really gets to me these are two of my favorite stories from the pertwee era um is terror of the autons and spearhead from space um with these it's not technically a human takeover um but you do have the autons coming in and replacing people and spearhead from space has sort of the terrifying thing that People are getting snatched up and replaced with autons, and they're being sort of the the people themselves are being stuck in a Madame Tussauds to just be living wax statues in a way, and they're trapped there while somebody else is walking around in a facsimile of their body, um, and that for me was kind of terrifying. Of there's you know so somebody's come in to replace you you're trapped you're powerless you can't do anything and somebody's walking around living your life in your body and yeah i think this is one example of where the classic version of the monster is a lot scarier than the oh absolutely I was thinking the exact version. same thing yeah i mean spearhead is terrifying in that it way is. 
And, and Terror of the Autons yeah. is, is a lot like that, too, in that you have people that are there that you think are people. Um, you know, I think one of the moments I actually jumped the first time I watched that episode is when Joe and the doctor are in the police car and he just reaches forward and pulls the face off of one of the policemen and it's oh, an yeah. Auton. Like, that's like, that was actually pretty good practical effects there for a moment that like you know obviously it's a real actor and getting replaced with a, a an auton at the end but like they did that transition so well that i was genuinely like jumped when it happened yeah uh, but to your point rachel the autons come back in a blaze of glory in yeah. rose and they might as well be cybermen and Mickey being taken over is played for laughs, really, not for horror. So, you know, they did it better in the 70s. Well, I think they had a little bit more of a point with them in the 70s. And like, this is not to rag on Rose, because I think they definitely had, you know, a point and a purpose in Rose of they were an alien that needed to be there, that needed to be, you know, th there was something about you needed to see Rose's Rose's life get completely turned on its head. And if she's a shop girl, you need to see, you know, the classic scene of the plastic shop dummies coming off the stands and coming to attack people. Um, and I think that it was just the point that they needed them for in Rose was to have a standard familiar Doctor Who villain for people who had been watching, but something that could be sort of understood well enough by people who are coming in completely brand new and fresh. And it needed to be something that could mostly sit in the background so you could have the explanation of who the doctor is and why he's there. Um, you know, they're, they're not meant to take center stage in that story. And they really do take center stage more in Terror and Spearhead because it's really more about, you know, they do have a little bit more of a political connotation in those stories. They do have a little bit more of a uh, a purpose for how they are going to scare you. They're not meant to be the background. They're meant to be in the forefront. Yeah, and I think, I think you're right there, especially because in, so in Rose, because they are the mannequins, they have to look more like mannequins and have that kind of plastic, less realistic look to them. Whereas in Spearhead, for instance, it really just looks like the person with sort of a, a coat of Vaseline or something on their face <laughs> so that it really looks more like a person. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes it scarier. Honorable mentions in the human takeover category includes a technology is scary corollary. You have TV. It's kind of the Black Mirror. Yeah, a little bit Black Mirror uh, episodes. Uh, you've got Idiot's Lantern, where TV is taking over people, and Bells of St. John, where Wi-Fi is taking over people. Um, I think the favorite thing I loved about Bells of St. John was the internet's reaction, because the internet is like, free Wi-Fi? I'd still connect to it. Yep. Absolutely. We all do it. That's the that was the thing about Bells of St. John that I can appreciate is yeah. that oh we see an open Wi-Fi. Hell yeah. Yep. And we're still doing it. We didn't yep. learn anything. We're still nope. gonna do the thing. Mm-hmm. So late at night when the storm's kicking up and Halloween's in full swing, what episode would each of you put on to scare the pants out of you this Halloween night? I'll go back to midnight. That is peak scary Doctor Who for me. I will absolutely go to midnight, but I might also check out Spearhead again. That's a good one. I think I would go back to Blink 
because it still scares the pants off of me. And then I think I would go to Terror because it still has some of my favorite Doctor Who moments ever. All right, well, best of luck with the trick-or-treaters tonight. Don't annoy any kids with toilet paper rolls or eggs. And try to leave some of the Halloween candy for the trick-or-treaters. You can find us on the internets at thisweekintimetravel.com and on Twitter at drwhothisweek. Alyssa tweets at Whovian Feminism. She also tumbles there as well. I tweet at numeral two minute time lord. Rachel tweets at R Miriam. And also, she is half of the Hockey Feels team at Hockey Feels on Twitter. We're also on Facebook as well. This Week in Time Travel is hosted by Jason Snell and the Incomparable Network. You can support our show by becoming a member and ticking the box for This Week in Time Travel and any other incomparable shows that you may like. Thanks also to Christopher Breen for our original theme music, to David J. Lore for our original podcast logo and avatar, and to Swear Who, just because. We will see you next week on This Week in Time Travel. Bye-bye.